This is Pastor Hal Mayer bringing you vital messages to help you understand the times in which we live so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Greetings, my dear friends. I am so thankful for our Lord Jesus who is taking care of everything. With the events of the last few weeks, I can see that we are so very near to the coming of Jesus. I pray that you are daily growing in grace and in victory over sin, the world, and the devil. Before we begin, I just want to mention that Keep the Faith Ministry is now on the web and that all the sermons that we have produced since November of 1998 are now online and that you can download them for your study. Please go to www.ktfministry.org That's www.ktfministry.org Click on the sermons link and you will be able to print them from there. There is much more on the website as well and much more coming. Also, for our U.S. listeners, this is the last cassette that you will receive before we start sending CDs, unless you have specifically requested cassettes. So, if you haven't returned your renewal card and indicated that you must have cassettes, we will start sending you CDs with the July sermon. For our international listeners, your last cassette will be the July sermon unless you have specifically asked for cassettes. For all our listeners, it is important for you to renew your subscription because later this year we will discontinue those who have not renewed. You may do it by sending in the yellow card that we sent you some time ago, or a simple note in the mail, or by email at subscriptions at ktfministry.org. That's subscriptions at ktfministry.org. And lastly, we have good news for those of you that have been asking about making a gift by credit card or debit card. You may now do so with your MasterCard or Visa. You can make a gift by contacting us whenever you want to make a gift. Or, if you ask us to, we can keep your card details on file and automatically charge your card monthly or at any frequency you wish and for whatever amount you wish. You can change your gift or discontinue it at any time. That will make it easy and save you time and money by not having to send a check each month. Our address is on the face of this tape. You may call us or write to us with the card number, the date of expiration, and the name as it appears on the card and your phone number. If you are using a visa, we also need the three-digit number printed in the signature line on the back of the card. I want to especially thank those who have been so very sacrificial in making gifts to keep the faith ministry, to make it possible to continue sending the tapes around the world to more than 80 countries. Now let us turn our attention to our message for today. The recent election of Benedict XVI to the papal chair 
has riveted the world's attention once again as the Vatican moves her agenda forward to build an empire that will one day soon be revealed as the harlot of Revelation. The two or three weeks surrounding the time between the death of John Paul II and the election of Benedict XVI to take his place has been one long media commercial for the Roman Catholic Church. This message is as much about the prophetic position of the Catholic Church as it is about Benedict XVI. But before we begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, once again we come and ask for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us as we study. Here we are at the end of time. It is so important that we watch and pray. It is vital that we pay attention to the things going on around us in the world. We need to understand that our redemption draweth nigh, but we also need to understand how Bible prophecy becomes the headlines in the morning paper, on television, and on the Internet. So speak to us through this message today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of Revelation. I'm going to read the first verse. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now who is the great whore? There is only one possible answer. The scripture is not addressing a very bad woman here. The revelator is speaking of the spiritual whore, the church that has left the truth and is committing spiritual adultery. This is none other than the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not referring to people that are members of that church when I say this. I'm referring to the hierarchy, the Vatican, or the papacy, and all of its teachings, structure, and political intrigues. Verse 15 tells us that she is sitting on many waters, which refers to multitudes of people. Truly, Rome rules over multitudes. In fact, there are over a billion adherents to the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. Notice the relationship between this church and the kings of the earth in verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What is being said here is that the rulers or leaders of the world have been involved with Rome in an unholy and immoral alliance thereby increasing its spiritual adultery. In fact, the unholy alliance itself is spiritual adultery. God is a God of freedom and liberty, and the mixing of church and state has always led to persecution of those that follow the Bible rather than tradition. But in reality, Rome is seeking to remove liberty by bringing kindreds, tongues, and nations under her dominion. For the scripture says in Revelation 13:7 that it was given unto him, the beast, 
to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This means that Rome is yet to rise higher in power, both spiritual and temporal. It is important to know this because this power is going to use the arm of the state to force all in the whole world to worship the Pope. For the next verse says in verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now coming back to chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. When you watched the papal funeral and the papal installation ceremony, did you see all the scarlet and purple? Did you see all the gold draped around Benedict the Sixteenth? Did you see the golden cup used in the mass with the wine? A woman represents a church in the Bible, and these that this wicked woman has are things that a church has and uses to teach false doctrine and practice spiritual fornication. God wants to make it very clear to those who are spiritually listening who this wicked church is, so he gives us much detail. Let me read on from verse 5. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. This woman is the most amazing woman in Scripture. Here is a church that claims to be Christ's church on earth, but they are doing the very opposite of what Christ commands or wishes for his people. In fact, this church cuts off the people from Christ and leads them to place their confidence in man for forgiveness of sin and salvation. The priest and pope have taken the place of Christ all in the name of Christ. The amazing thing is that Rome and the papacy are enormously popular. Think about the late Pope John Paul II for a minute. As we noted in the sermon last month, John Paul II was perhaps the most popular pope in history. Yet it greatly interested me that flags around the world are flown at half-mast. Usually this is done to honor a national dignitary, or an important national figure at his death, but not a foreigner or the head of state of another nation. The nations that do this are, in essence, recognizing Rome as a superior entity. They don't lower flags memorializing the death of the leaders of other nations. By lowering their flags, these nations revealed that they don't view the Vatican as just another nation. 
the only symbolism possible in lowering a nation's flags on behalf of the Pope, the head of another nation's state, is to symbolically recognize the superiority of the papacy and the Pope over their own nation or people. For example, when President Bush ordered the flags of the United States government to fly at half-mast for Pope John Paul II, he did something that the United States does, does for no other foreign leader. This symbolically suggested that the United States views the Vatican as a superior state. It is impossible that the United States views the Vatican as part of itself, because it simply isn't. Nor would the United States view the Vatican as an equal, because it never lowers flags for the death of leaders of other equal nation-states. Could it really be true that the United States now views itself as subordinate to Rome, since a national directive from the President required the government to fly its flags at half-mast? This is the only possible answer. And I'm sure that Roman Curia loves to see the United States and other nations honoring the Pope, its dead head of state, suggesting that the Vatican is a superior entity. In the emotions of the moment, I doubt most people even thought about this. The President's executive order was not about private entities. Only flags on government property were required to fly at half-mast. What could be the symbolism or the statement being made by private institutions that flew their flags half-mast? This could only mean that they, too, recognized the Pope as a superior entity in much the same way as the government did. Therefore, I was shocked when I learned that there were Seventh-day Adventist institutions that were flying their flags half-mast. It left me cold when I learned that Atlantic Union College in Massachusetts lowered its flag. Quite probably, there were many other SDA institutions, schools, hospitals, etc., that lowered their flags. Why are Seventh-day Adventists so eager to memorialize the death of the Pope, a foreign dignitary and a man who has moved America and the world much closer to the fulfillment of prophecy? Why would Seventh-day Adventists be so ready to honor the Pope who represents everything that Seventh-day Adventists oppose? No doubt Satan was very pleased at this. Certainly, some would try to excuse it on the basis that our institutions are just being respectful. But I doubt that is the way Rome views it. By lowering Adventist institutional flags to half-mast, we are telling the world that we have the same respect for the Vatican and the Pope that the government has, which is committing spiritual fornication with her. When the television cameras focus on our president kneeling before the dead pope, and our nation's flags lowered half-mast, and then they see flags lowered half-mast at Adventist institutions, they very easily understand us to mean that if we were at the papal funeral, we too would have knelt before the dead pope.
But as I read the reports of the words that were said about John Paul II, I was truly shocked at the strides that have been made by Rome in winning the whole world, including some people that you might not expect. Here are the comments from Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a Democrat to the United States House of Representatives from Texas. I'm quoting directly from her website. He was a great humanitarian, she said, as she expressed her profound sorrow at the passing of Pope John Paul II. The Pope is deserving of the great outpouring of love he has received, she continued. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is a well-known Seventh-day Adventist. Imagine that! A Seventh-day Adventist eulogizing the Pope in such glowing terms. She went on to say that Pope John Paul II chose to move into a more abundant life, not from a hospital bed, but from his home in Vatican City. What does our Seventh-day Adventist congresswoman from Texas believe about life after death? John Paul II is not in the bliss of heaven or any more abundant life. He is in his grave, and he's dead, according to Scripture. He is neither in heaven or hell. He is waiting for the judgment where his deeds, whether they be good or evil, will be judged. Inspiration declares the teaching that there is immediate life after death to be one of the two principal falsehoods in the last days. Listen to what God's prophet has to say in the book Great Controversy on page 588. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. What Congresswoman Jackson Lee believes is spiritualism, and this Adventist Congresswoman is actually teaching and affirming it by her statement on her website about John Paul II going to a more abundant life. Still further, Congresswoman Jackson Lee reaffirmed her shocking testimony a second time by saying, Today I, along with so many Americans, continue to pray for Pope John Paul II. Why would a Seventh-day Adventist pray for a dead pope? There is no point in praying for a dead man. What good can prayers do for the dead? His probation is over. His eternal destiny is certain, one way or the other. Vain prayers will do nothing for him now or in eternity. Does our congresswoman think that by prayers for John Paul II she can do anything for his soul? This is amazing. Praying for the dead originated with paganism and came over into the Catholic Church. I wonder what religion she really is. Then I read a statement on the web by an Adventist hospital administrator who praised the Pope by quoting some of his writings over and over again. Then I read another Adventist congressman's comments about the dead Pope. Roscoe Bartlett from Maryland said, Pope John Paul II was an extraordinary man. 
and inspiring witness of faith in God and an influential world leader. He expanded peace and freedom for millions of people. Was John Paul II really an inspiring witness of faith in God? I think he was more likely an inspiring witness of faith in Mary, or the demon impersonating Mary. While we can grant him whatever sincerity he is due, I can't hardly imagine that he can really be an inspiring witness of faith in God when he affirmed the most diabolical and unbiblical doctrines of Rome during his pontificate, including indulgences, the punishment of heretics, and the veneration of Mary. But why all the praise from some Seventh-day Adventists? John Paul II certainly made an impact on the world, but was he somehow more venerable than any other human being because he held the office of Pope? Perhaps we have not done a good enough job in training God's people concerning the teachings of Scripture about the man of sin. Let us now come back to Revelation 17. I am reading from verse 6 and onward. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. The world is truly wondering. This is the same Rome that murdered those that opposed her doctrines. This is the same Rome that used the rack, the thumbscrew, and the stake to torture and maim those who stood for Bible truth. Rome is indeed drunk with the blood of the saints, the true saints of God. But many argue that Rome has changed. Has Rome really changed? Does a dead pope really deserve praise and flattery? Certainly not, in spite of the outward appearances. Rome has not changed. Remember that Satan comes as an angel of light so that he can deceive people into believing that he is of God. So we should expect that his agents will do the same. They will come in popularity and in the best form so that the people will think that they are working for God when in reality they are working for Satan. Great Controversy, page 571, plainly tells us that the papacy is just what prophecy declared that she would be, the apostasy of the latter times. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. It is a part of her policy to assume the character which will best accomplish her purpose. But beneath the variable appearance of the chameleon, she conceals the invariable venom of the serpent. 
Sometime I would like to do a sermon on the encyclicals and declarations of John Paul II and the doctrines that he upheld during his pontificate. But for now, let us remember that Revelation 13.3 tells us that all the world wondered after the beast. As I have read the news reports, I was amazed at how literally this prophecy is being fulfilled. Let us read Revelation 17, 12, and 13. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength to the beast. Do you realize that the world is being divided up into ten regions? The rulers of these ten regions no doubt work in conjunction with the UN for global control. The scripture says these rulers, or whatever rulers will be ruling, will help Rome achieve her goal, the spiritual control of the world. Rome is not able to control the world by military force. Rome doesn't have one tank, one jet bomber, or one machine gun. The Vatican only has a few Swiss guards. But the scripture says that Rome is going to wage war with the Lamb. How can that be when Rome has no tools of war? It is because Rome is popular. The Vatican is popular. And the Pope is popular. This draws the leaders of the world to unite with Rome to fulfill their objectives. By public interaction with Rome, the world leaders get support from their Catholic constituencies. The Vatican builds credibility with the people, giving it substantial political power. She will then use those nations to work her will and oppress God's faithful people. Revelation 17.14 says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Are you called, chosen, and faithful? Are you with the Lamb? If so, you will be assaulted by the forces of evil. You will become the target of the Vatican. Having said all that, let us study about Benedict XVI. The world was still highly emotional about John Paul II when Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was elected Pope in Papal Conclave. Born in Bavaria, Germany, Cardinal Ratzinger was seen as the most likely candidate before the Conclave. He had been the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and a close confidant of Pope John Paul II. He had a very powerful position in the Vatican and was an intimate insider with all the Vatican's secrets and agendas. Conclave is when all the cardinals gather together in the Sistine Chapel and elect a new pope. All are sworn to secrecy about the deliberations. Even the nuns who attend the cardinals have to take an oath of secrecy. 
the cardinals elect the leader of the church and the head of the Vatican State. Outside influences are minimized. They are accountable to no one. The cardinals are not subject to political influences, nor is the new pope accountable to anyone but himself. All must be accountable to him. The new pope and world leader is then to be revered and respected as the Holy Father by all faithful Catholics. At the same time, the new pope is respected by most national leaders worldwide but they do not respect him merely as one on a level with themselves. They respect him as one who is above them. They respect him as the one who is the moral voice of the world. This gives him an authority that is way beyond the average world leader. He is also respected by religious leaders from nearly all religions. This adds still more to his authority and moral voice. The position of Pope has become, especially under the leadership of John Paul II, the most powerful position in the world. It is even more powerful than the Secretary General of the United Nations or the President of the United States. Never before has there been so many of the people in the world so interested in all that is happening at the Vatican. Never before has there been such a reservoir of popular support worldwide for the position held by a single man. Never before has a pope been elected in such a climate. Benedict XVI has a good deal of papal experience and is very familiar with the halls of power. But what makes this man so respected? The answer lies in Scripture. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered. Revelation 13.3 It is the popularity of his position that gives him power. John Paul II was able to accomplish much in ecumenical lines, but Benedict XVI intends to take it much farther, assuming he lives long enough. He is calling for the unity of all churches, but it is not a unity built on equity and the equality of all. It is a unity under one head, the Pope of Rome. This will bring the ultimate spiritual compromise and complete the work of undoing the Reformation. For a great new book on this subject, get a copy of The Perils of Ecumenism, by Colin and Russell Standish from Heartland Publications. This enlightening book goes into the background of the current developments in preparing the world churches for unity. How is the work of the Reformation going to be undone? Let me read it to you from Scripture. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Speaking to the church of Thyatira, Jesus says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. 
This scripture is not referring to the literal woman Jezebel that lived in the time of Ahab and Elijah, but spiritual Jezebel, who is all decked out with jewelry and is a spiritual whore. This is none other than Rome. Thyatira represents the period of time when the true churches were descending into apostasy and compromise. It was the time when impostors were usurping the authority of the Bible and replacing it with the authority of tradition. It was a horrible time in history when God's servants were seduced and taught how to commit spiritual fornication through compromise with pagan doctrines that Rome brought into the church like a flood. They were taught how to mix politics and religion, to usurp temporal power, and thereby control the bodies and minds of the multitudes. They adopted the practices and teachings of Rome, and the whole of the Western Empire became enslaved to the spiritualism, superstition, and seduction of Catholicism. But it, is, but it also represents some aspects of the time of the end, as do all of the seven churches of Revelation, when again the Vatican is seducing the servants of God, the ministers and religious leaders, and even some rather overtly religious political leaders. Again the Vatican is teaching for commandments the doctrines of men and gathering the support of religious leaders. Jezebel represents the papacy today. How does the papacy seduce churches? Even those that arose out of the Reformation when men and women gave their lives for spiritual and temporal freedom? She does this by adopting a kindly, peaceful attitude toward those that have opposed her. She asks forgiveness for the things that her sons and daughters have done in the name of the church. She presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. That's from Great Controversy, page 571. Benedict XVI has already met many of the world leaders during his 24 Vatican years. He knows world politics very well and has a close eye on all, the, all that affects the church. He also knows the discussions and agreements between his church and other churches, between his nation-state and other nation-states. When Cardinal Ratzinger was elevated to the position of Pope, he gained the title Holy Father. I wondered what made him more holy than before his election. How does human election to a human position make one holy? Holiness is a matter of the heart, not of position. Herein is one of the greatest blasphemies of the Roman Catholic faith. It is taught that the church structure and the positions within that structure are holy, and therefore the men and women in those positions are also holy. There is none good but one, Jesus said, that is, God. In Matthew 19, verse 17. How then can a man be holy? The term Holy Father is blasphemous 
because it separates the people from true holiness, the holiness that comes when the heart is pure. It also implies that the Pope is to be worshipped as holy. Furthermore, Cardinal Ratzinger and all the Pope's prelates and priests use the term Father to refer to themselves, even though Jesus deliberately said in Matthew 23, verse 9, to call no man your Father upon the earth, for one is your Father which is in heaven. Again, this term as applied to a priest is blasphemous. Cardinal Ratzinger chose the name Benedict XVI. The term Benedict comes from the same word as benediction, meaning blessing. A benediction is the last word, a fitting name for the one in charge of disciplining those who disagree with Rome. But Benedict is not going to have the last word. The one with the last word is Jesus, for it is the Lamb that overcomes the beast, according to Revelation 17.14. Cardinal Ratzinger, who turned 78 years of age three days before his election, is the first German pope in nearly a millennia. He was in charge of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith since 1981, when John Paul II appointed him to that position. This position, called the prefect, or chief magistrate, is responsible for the department formerly known, up to 1965, as the Holy Office, and before 1542 as the Holy Inquisition, the Vatican Engine of Terror. In fact, in former times, Cardinal Ratzinger would have been known as Grand Inquisitor, it was Ratzinger's responsibility to protect the doctrine of the church. He was known as the enforcer of the faith, reported MSNBC on April 19, 2005, because he disciplined church dissidents and upheld church policy. Since the Ronald Reagan years in the U.S. White House, Cardinal Ratzinger has been close to the action and the cultivation of a U.S.-Vatican alliance which has helped the United States to reach across the Atlantic Ocean, across the political and spiritual gulf, in large public steps toward Rome. John Paul II, with Ratzinger and other key Vatican curia, have worked very hard in forging other political alliances as well. Benedict XVI knows very well how to carry on the work of John Paul II in both the political and the religious arenas. The Reformers would not recognize the Pope as head of the Church. They would not recognize her customs, many of her rituals, and many of her ceremonies. But now the Reformation is over. Now these very churches that arose during that powerful moment in history have muted their voice of protest. They have left their mission and are actually helping Rome regain her supremacy. Benedict XVI, like his predecessor John Paul II, has come out and said plainly that Rome, 
and the Pope is to be the head of all the churches again. Listen to what some religious leaders have to say about Benedict XVI. Rowan Williams, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, said, I look forward to meeting him and working together to build on the legacy of his predecessor as we seek to promote shared understanding between our churches in the service of the gospel and the goal of Christian unity. Rabbi David Rosen of the American Jewish Committee said, Cardinal Ratzinger already has shown a profound commitment to advancing Catholic-Jewish relations, and we look forward to continuing our close working relationship with the Church. Mazduki Bedlawi, senior figure of the largest Muslim group in Indonesia, said, I hope the new Pope would carry the same spirit of peace and interreligious harmony as Pope John Paul II. But world leaders were more enthusiastic about Benedict XVI. The following comments are from the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, April 20, 2005. I think he will be a worthy successor to Pope John Paul II, said German President Horst Kohler. I congratulate him on behalf of the government and all Germans. Kofi Annan, UN Secretary General, said, His Holiness brings a wealth of experience to his exalted office. Did you understand that? He spoke of the papal office as exalted. This strongly implies how all nations represented at the UN view the papacy. It is indeed exalted to the point where even the UN looks to Rome for moral leadership. He continued, The United Nations and the Holy See share a strong commitment to peace, social justice, human dignity, religious freedom, and mutual respect among the world's religions. George W. Bush, President of the United States, described him as a man of great wisdom and knowledge. He's a man that serves the Lord. We join our fellow citizens and millions around the world who pray for continued strength and wisdom as His Holiness leads the Catholic Church. Amazing words from a U.S. president. Listen now to Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, the Spanish Prime Minister. I state the willingness of the government of Spain to sustain the historic relations between Spain and the Holy See and to cooperate with Your Holiness during Your mandate. I take this opportunity, Your Holiness, to send you the testimony of my highest consideration and esteem. Do you know what the historic relationship is between Spain and the Vatican? Spain was the center of the Inquisition. It was the most Catholic of all nation-states during the Middle Ages. Spain brutally punished supposed heretics mercilessly. Does he really mean what he said? Is Spain going to help Rome re-establish her former persecutions? Remember, Cardinal Ratzinger 
was the most recent head of the Holy Office of the Inquisition. Bill Frist, U.S. Senate Majority Leader, said, I am confident that Pope Benedict XVI is blessed with the same compassion and vision that made Pope John Paul II one of the world's most revered and respected voices. We want to congratulate him and tell him we're on his side, said President of Mexico Vicente Fox. We want to build and keep growing this magnificent, or extraordinary relationship that has been built between our country and the Vatican. Extraordinary relationship? What does that mean? It means that the relationship between Mexico and the Vatican is far more important to him than his relationship with the United States or any other nation. Now listen to Silvio Berlusconi, the Italian Prime Minister. I certainly express the feelings of all Italians, and I am particularly delighted when I present Your Holiness with the warm and respectful homage of the Italian government. Did you hear that? He gives the Pope the homage of the Italian government. What does the word homage mean? It means submission and reverential regard. It also means that the entity giving homage is a vassal. Imagine that, the Italian government giving the Pope assurance that they are under his control. These amazing statements tell us that Revelation 13 is being fulfilled. At his inaugural address, Benedict XVI made obvious overtures to the world's religions, reaching out to Christians and Jews. He called Jews his brothers and sisters in a shared spiritual heritage. He also, several times, called for the full communion of Christians, reported the Sacramento Union. At his inauguration, he told ecumenical leaders, Your presence, dear brothers in Christ, beyond that which divides us and casts a shadow over our full and visible communion, is a sign of sharing and support for the Bishop of Rome, which can count on you. Can Benedict count on you to work for full visible communion with Rome? I hope not. But that is what Benedict is pursuing. Cardinal Ratzinger was the one who issued the document Dominus Jesus in 2000, in which he declared that the only way to salvation is the Roman Catholic Church. This doctrine is the basis for the teaching that ecumenical unity is only possible through full, visible communion with the Church of Rome. Benedict stated in Dominus Jesus that non-Catholic Christian churches have defects and are not churches at all in the proper sense. Full, visible unity is the only option in his mind and the only purpose for ecumenical dialogue. Many world leaders also attended his inauguration, including 40 heads of state and representatives of royal houses. During Sunday Mass, Muslims, Buddhists, and representatives of most of the world's religions were in attendance. It is patently 
obvious that we are in a new day in world relations with the Vatican. It is also obvious that in the years leading up to the third millennium, there has been much behind-the-scenes activity to prepare for this time of popularity and public profile for the Vatican. Think about it. This did not happen by chance. My friends, Jesus is coming very soon. We need His power in our lives to overcome and live for Him. Your eternal destiny is at stake. As we see events unfolding and as we think about their implications, surely we can see that we cannot delay to prepare. I urge you to put away anything unlike Christ. I urge you to put away anything that you know is not part of God's will. We don't have to be afraid of the future, but we must prepare. That means that we must study our Bibles and the spirit of prophecy with diligence and with prayer that the Holy Spirit will awaken us to anything that needs His refinement. The reign of Benedict XVI is likely to be rather short. He could also be the last pope this world will ever have. If so, he will be a key player in the final oppression of God's faithful people. Either way, we can see that Jesus' coming is very near. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the only one we can call our Father. We see that the events of recent weeks have stirred our souls. We see that there are those that are not living, acting, or believing as they should, even among those claiming to be part of the remnant, and it grieves our hearts. We see that our own lives are not what they should be. Please, Father, help us to overcome. We want to be saved, and we want your Holy Spirit and the angels to protect us during the coming crisis. We know that your word tells us that if we search for you with all our hearts, we will find you and you will save us. Keep us in your care and keep us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Like the fragrance of flowers, like the soft summer showers, is the peace that my Savior has given. Like the dews of the morning, all the hillsides adorning, is the peace the mountain and deep as the sea is the peace